Welcome to the Nuco Shift Dialogues podcast. For the first season, we've selected some of the best conversations we've had throughout the year to share with you, our first listeners. These conversations were originally recorded at the NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center as part of our Dialogues project, where we chat with leaders on the front lines of the greatest shift in business since the Industrial Revolution. The first season of our podcast is brought to you by EY, Building a Better Working World. Right now, only 15% of the money that flows out of financial institutions is being invested in businesses. The other 85 stays in a closed loop that contributes to the financialization of our economy. That's the argument put forth by Rana Furahar in her book, Makers and Takers. In this conversation, Furahar lays out not only the core arguments of her book, but also ties today's extraordinary social shifts to a long-term trend of financialization in our economy. Welcome, Rana. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So I read your book a few months ago. I mean, a few months before it came out, you were kind enough to send me uh, a copy, and I found myself thinking that it was really framing the, the narrative that NUCO is about. Um, but instead of trying to say what it's about, I'm going to ask you this question. This, you're at a cocktail party, um, <laughs> and someone hasn't read your book. They hear you've written one. Yep. What's your you know, central argument when someone asks you, what's your book about? My book explores how the rise of our financial sector over the last 40 years, the growth in size, which has been tremendous, and also the change in what the capital markets actually do in their own business model is hurting companies and is hurting our economic growth. And if there's a killer stat in the book, uh, it's that only 15% of all the capital flowing out of U.S. financial institutions right now, and I'm including uh, big banks, insurance companies, real estate trust, anybody that kind of, you know, moves money around. All the cash flowing out of those institutions, only 15% of it is, be is being invested in businesses. So where's the rest of it going? Well, that's my question to you. I mean, <laughs> so the 85% of the money is being used to do what? Well, my argument is that it's in a sort of a closed financial loop. Uh, it's part of a process that I call financialization, um, whereby the markets have begun to exist basically to serve themselves. So you've got 15% of investment going into business, which by the way, just to step back for a minute, that's what the financial markets were set up to do. Right. You know, if you think about what Adam Smith envisioned banks doing, they were supposed to take all of our savings, productive labor, uh, and put it into banks, and then the banks were supposed to lend it out to new businesses that grow jobs and grow the economy. So 15% of it does that. The rest is being used for trading, for the buying and selling of existing assets, mm -hmm. so bonds, stocks, real estate, and real estate is highly financialized. Mm -hmm. um, one of the reasons that we have the housing bubbles, up and down housing bubbles, and, and we have one again mm. uh, in this country, not, not the, the, of the size we had in 2008, but one of the reasons that happens is because those markets have become so financialized and banks uh, and other financial institutions now spend the majority of their time buying and selling and splicing and dicing those assets rather than investing in the new, new thing. When I talk to people who are at financial institutions about this question, which is, you know, it doesn't seem like even though the point, or one of the many points of the 2008 bailout was to encourage more lending, um, but it doesn't seem like that actually has happened, to yeah. certainly to the extent that maybe the economy needs, as you would argue. They would respond to me and say, well, lending to small business which is where most mm -hmm. of the jobs and the growth comes from, is too risky. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's the most ironic answer because 
that's what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah, mm -hmm. nobody said it was easy. Mm -hmm. You know, you can ask any venture capitalist, I'm sure, um, here in California. It's not easy. It is risky. But that's what the capital markets were set up to do. Nobody ever thought that Wall Street was going to become an end in and of itself, whereby per, uh, trading, buying and selling that has very little social value, and this is not just my opinion, but the opinion of many serious economists, some Nobel Prize winners like Joe Stiglitz, that has very little social and economic value. Instead, the stuff that does have real social and economic value, the productive allocation of capital to new businesses, that's not happening. And by the way, this is barely being talked about in policy circles, and it's not even being modeled. You know, when the Fed um, comes up with its sort of giant algorithms that it crunches in the basement, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in Washington to decide what the economy is going to look at, the financial sector itself doesn't even get modeled. What's yeah. the impact of Brexit on the sort of financialization story that, that you're so, your book is so focused on? It's, it's, a, it's a big issue. It's a big issue. So just to take a step back, um, you know, my take on the last eight years is that we haven't really had a real recovery. Uh, the markets are way up here. You know, they're still, even after the dip. The markets have recovered. The markets have recovered. Yeah, even after the dip that we've seen recently because of Brexit and global volatility, they're still, you know, uh, at near record highs. But Main Street is still in the longest, weakest recovery of the post-war era. You've still got stagnant wages. You've got barely any inflation. And now you've got this headwind and turbulence from abroad in the form of Brexit. But to go back to the immediate effects, yeah, Janet Yellen, the chair of the Fed, is very worried about um, not only risk in Europe, but in China and other overseas markets. So she's keeping interest rates low. Well, low interest rates encourage debt. It encourages the kind of corporate debt bubble we've seen in the last few years. Corporate debt is at record levels, which also brings up another irony that I cover in my book, even as there's a bigger than ever corporate debt bubble. Corporations also have more cash on the balance sheets yeah, than and, ever before. And we, we talk about that, and I want to sidebar that. But, yeah. but uh, I want to, uh, when you say there's more corporate debt than ever, it makes one think, oh, well, then there's a lot of lending going on, but yeah. it's not lending to no. the real economy. No, basically corporations are going to the bond markets. They're using this low interest rate environment. And by the way, I'm not really blaming the Fed for this. I think the Fed did what they have had to do. There was nobody in Washington that was able uh, to push through real fiscal policy of the kind that would have really stimulated a Main Street recovery. So the Fed just kind of came in and tried to put everything together with duct tape. And they dumped a lot of money into the economy and they kept rates low. But what that does is it creates an environment that makes it really, really easy for companies to issue a lot of debt in the public markets. And so that's why you see record number of share buybacks. Um, you know, companies go out, they issue uh, billions of dollars worth of debt. They use that money not to invest in new factories, worker training, higher wages, but to pay back shareholders. That then increases this Wall Street, Main Street divide because 80% of the population, or excuse me, 10% of the population in this country owns 80% of the assets. So when you're driving up asset prices, you're really only enriching a tiny sliver of the population. Right. And that, of course, leads to political populism. Exactly. It's, it's a yeah. terrible snowball circle, right. really. Let me try to bring this to an example that I think particularly people here in the Valley really understand, which is Apple. Mm -hmm. um, uh, as an example of a company that is sort of doing exactly what it's being incented to do. Yeah, so I did a big profile of Carl Icahn a few years ago for Time. And at the time, he owned a large chunk of Apple. And about every couple of days, he was tweeting, you know, manically for them to give more money back to shareholders, do more buybacks. And Tim Cook was apparently listening to him because, mm -hmm. um, as you've seen, they've already done billions of dollars worth of debt issuances, done share buybacks, and they now have commitments over the next few years to issue 
almost as much debt and do as many uh, buybacks as they have money sitting in overseas bank accounts. Now, they don't want to bring the money back, obviously, and pay the higher than average U.S. corporate tax rate. But it's this great irony that a company like Apple, which actually doesn't need any capital, is more involved than ever in the capital markets in a way that I think is not actually changing the underlying business story. It's certainly not helping Main Street. And it's also creating a really volatile path for Apple itself. Because you see the minute, you know, as bullish as Carl Icahn was for a number of years, the minute there's bad news for the company in China, boom, he dumps the stock and it tanks, which just right. shows you how financialized that growth story is. Right. We're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars. Yeah. Right. Yeah. $200 billion sitting overseas in bank accounts. Right commitments to do almost that much uh, in terms of debt issuance and buybacks here. So they're, they're literally, just to be super clear, they are issuing debt, mm -hmm. even though they have plenty of cash, <laughs> yes. to buy their own shares back yes. and release dividends to shareholders. That's right. And you know, I want to- So they're not using that money, yeah. just to be clear, yeah. to figure out what the next iPhone is. <laughs> no, no, they're not. As a matter of fact, uh, R&D as a percentage of revenue at Apple has been falling as buybacks have been increasing. And they're not alone. That's, mm -hmm. that's by and large true for, for most S&P 500 companies. Um, you know, it's kind of ironic because, of course, uh, a lot of technologies that make the iPhone smart were actually developed by the federal government. And so one might say, well, hey, it might be a good idea to bring back that money and, right. and uh, pay the U.S. tax rate, whatever it is. But that's, an, that's another argument. Um, you know, the point is that this doesn't change the underlying growth story of a company. It's not real growth. It's, it's sort of genetically modified growth. Well, or it's, it's stock price growth. Yeah, it's saccharin. It's market highs. And it can go away. I mean, right now we're at a tipping point, actually. If you look at uh, the record number of share buy buybacks that are being done, it has a less and less effect in terms of bolstering the stocks. I'm curious when your book came out, or maybe if you circulated reading copies to some of your sources in the financial industry, what was the response? I mean, if I'm making 10, 11 million bucks a year in bonuses <laughs> running this financialized engine and pumping it through, I'm probably not going to like this book, am I? Yeah, well, it's funny. I thought I was going to get a lot of pushback from Wall Street. But in fact, uh, I've gotten a lot of calls from, from high-level financiers, from hedge funders, from private equity guys, who are actually really interested in the book because they're interested in the underlying premise that when finance gets too big, mm -hmm. growth starts to slow. Because they think about that as something that's eventually going to hit their own portfolio. As a percentage of corporate profits, you have a great uh, metric. I want, yeah, I want you. I want to tease that out of you. Yeah, here. yeah. This is the taker part. Right. Um, so finance, uh, as an industry, makes only four percent of jobs in this country, but it takes twenty-five percent of corporate profits. So all you have to do, you know, you can even just look at this as a classical economist and say that's a lot of economic oxygen being taken out of the room. That's a monopoly power right there. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that's really important, and I think will resonate with people in the valley, is. As finance has gotten bigger, it has not gotten more efficient. So financial fees have doubled as the industry has grown. So that, again, shows me that there's something funny going on here. This is not an efficient, productive model. Right. So if, if the smart money, so to speak, is, I would assume, is calling you and saying, <laughs> all right, uh, maybe we're taking this a bit too far, yeah. um, are there ideas about what to do about it? Yeah. So the asset management industry, uh, which is the fastest growing part of finance, this is the part of finance that manages everybody's pension money, 401ks, they're very interested in this, right? Because they see a looming crisis coming. 
Um, a lot of smart money believes that we are at the tipping point of financialized growth. We've had 40 years of this. And that we're now, because of that, and because of this lack of investment into the underlying economy, we're entering a period for the next 20, 30, 40 years where returns will be lower, like significantly lower, maybe half what they have been in the past. That creates a pension crisis. I, it begs the question, what role government? Because you know, you do, in your book, you trace uh, a lot of the incentives that, that have been created over the past 40 years to a, a pretty significant deregulatory you know, philosophy yeah. in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Uh, does this mean that we should be thinking about more regulation? One simple question that the financial industry should be asked and should come up with a metric to answer is, what is the productive, uh, useful, economically and socially useful thing that you are doing for society, for business, for the economy? And that's a simple question. And if you don't, if you don't know what to say for that, then it's, that's an important point. Yeah. Do you feel that there may be a growing consensus about what the outcome is? And if so, can you tell me what that outcome is? That's a really good point. Um, and it's a deep question because it requires an existential kind of shift in mindset from a market knows best, finance knows best, if we just do what Wall Street tells us to do as companies, as consumers, that we will have good economic outcomes. That has been a very difficult orthodoxy to turn back. And there are still powerful people in Washington and on the street that, that have that belief system. But I think the fact that we are eight years on, still in the slowest, weakest recovery of the post-war era, that we are basically reliant on near zero interest rates to avoid falling back into another recession is kind of you know, waking people up. And they're like, we need a new model. Wall Street and Main Street are not the same thing. And eventually, in an economy that is 70% consumer spending, if people don't get a raise, the math starts to not work. <laughs> Absolutely. So. Yeah. The idea was, you know, uh, and I think you quote some figures in your book, um, prior to the past 40 years where we've adopted this orthodoxy, mm. um, your pension, your retirement, was sort of part of your working life, and, mm. you, and you paid into it regularly, and it was, it was sort of a highly regulated environment, but it took care of you. That's switched completely, and, and, and sort of in the 80s and 90s, we said, well, don't worry, we'll just make our pension the market, right? right. And, and, and then, so everybody, including my mother, checks their, their, oh, yeah. their stock balances almost every day, and they're all a little concerned, yeah. right? Right, and, and it, you as a society then get into this sort of Faustian bargain where everybody is dependent on the markets going up, 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 up for their wealth or their perceived wealth. And so you don't want to look too closely at how the sausage gets made. That's mm -hmm. why, you know, when you start to be someone like me who raises these issues, people get a little concerned. Well, what's that going to do for the markets? Well, we may have a correction at some point, but ultimately we'll have stronger, more robust, sustainable growth if we switch to a different model. Right. Pre uh, previous conversation, um, Uber, mm. the company Uber came up. Now, Uber, I think, is now a Rashomon here in the Valley. Mm. It, it's sort of plays, huh. it plays the role that, that Google played uh, 10, 12 years ago, or that Facebook played five years ago, it's our greatest success. Yeah. Um, it's also the thing that makes more people uncomfortable yeah. uh, than almost any other company in, in recent history. What's your point of view about Uber as an expression of our you know, current Western capitalism? Is it a maker or a taker? <laughs> well, you know, I think to the extent that it's putting a lot of wealth in a very small number of people's hands, 
it's taking. Um, you know, Uber is an interesting company because I think you're right, it really touches on people's anxieties about what the 21st century global economy is going to look like. And I think all of us know to some extent that we can be Uberized. You know, mm -hmm. journalism has been Uberized. Um, and many white collar professions have been or will be Uberized. And so what is that breakdown of the traditional social compact, which Uber didn't start, but is just a really public expression of, what does that look like? Um, who picks up the slack? You know, you have a system where you've got a company with an incredibly high market value creating fewer and fewer full-time, you know, good, sustainable jobs and a lot of freelance piecemeal work. How do you make sure that the people that are doing that work um, are secure and don't end up, you know, sort of getting the dregs of um, uh, the economic cup there? Are you going to have portable benefits? Is government going to step in and do that? You know, what are the solutions? And I think that it really just touches a lot of that anxiety. I'm curious what your sort of East Coast establishment point of view is about the current West Coast obsession with basic income. I'm more interested in how technology might actually help labor to harness a greater share of the pie. I'm interested in some of the uh, cooperative platform technologies that are springing up. You know, there are some disgruntled Uber drivers that have started their own uh, Ubers online, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and there could be more of that. I think that if we adopted some kind of model rather than just um, paying out a flat rate to everybody, which I think could become politically very difficult, I think if we figured out ways to help technology help labor get a bigger share of the capital pie, to me that's the way to um, create a more shared recovery. Right. Was there's a significant uh, lack of trust mm. between um, sort of the, the, the population at large yeah. and that population's elite. Yeah. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I think you see it playing out, you know, not only in the Brexit vote uh, in Britain, but here at home in the politics in our presidential cycle, I've been so struck not only by the success of Donald Trump and to a lesser extent Bernie Sanders, but the fact that Hillary Clinton even when she comes up with policies that are smart uh, and do address these underlying Main Street growth issues, she can't get traction. Um, now, part of that may be down to her own sort of you know, political um, persona, but I think it's about the fact that for 40 years, elites have been a bit smug about globalization and financialization. And you know, I know just in these sort of East Coast establishment circles, until the last few years, it was just totally forbidden to question any of this stuff. You would be laughed out of, out of rooms, you know, for asking dumb questions. Um, that's just arrogant. Mm -hmm. And I think that we, we need to look at how these trends, which increase prosperity at a global level, impact citizens on the ground in every country. Because they do create winners and losers, and we have to make sure that we're getting the rules right to um, compensate those who are losing. Um, I think it's about the fact that many of us who are invested in the asset markets, who own equity stakes in firms, or at least own property and large stock portfolios, are doing better than ever before. Because the returns to assets have been rising and rising and rising. That's where capital it, it flows. It flows up. You know, it's the opposite of trickle down. Mm -hmm. But if you get most of your money from income, you're in trouble. Right. You know, most people haven't gotten a raise in real terms since the early 1990s. Donald Trump's voters haven't gotten a raise in real terms since the 1970s. Well, and there you have it in a nutshell. Exactly. Fascinating. Well, Rana, thank you so much for coming by thanks, today. Thanks for having me. Thanks to our sponsor, EY, for their support of our first season of the Shift Dialogue podcast. EY, building a better working world.